This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lend Me Your Ears, the show that takes a look at new films in theaters or on streaming platforms and compares them to films from days gone by, whether it's a genre or a subject or possibly some of the talent behind the camera or maybe one of its stars. Either way, we have a lot of fun with the films that we look at every week. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm a multimedia journalist here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today, with Oscar season hotly upon us, we're going to take a look at one of the most nominated films, The Power of the Dog, and the career of its amazing director, Jane Campion, starting right after this. Right, so Stephen, today we're talking about Jane Campion, as you mentioned here on Lends Me Your Ears. She's a Wellington-born filmmaker who, in, in New Zealand, obviously, studied art and film in Sydney, started a professional career in Australia. Her, she had a short film that won a Palme d'Or at the 1986 Cannes Film Festival, and after that she was off to the races. And her films certainly are fascinating, usually told from, from the perspective of, of a female protagonist. The Power of the Dog actually might be the first one that isn't, interestingly. Strongly feminist themes, women stuck between men or struggling with the patriarchal structures in different eras, complex, flawed characters who tend to express their sensuality. I think there's a nudity in almost every one of her films and, and sexuality, which is, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan, so great. Um, <laughs> she's also got a terrific way of seeing the world. Her films are never less than gorgeous to look at. I think it's fair to say that even her lesser work is more interesting than some other filmmakers best and that's I think a sign of her huge talent now she's best known probably for the piano it won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, Campion was nominated for Best Director. It also won some acting awards. She's been nominated again this year for Power of the Dog. It's a film that's also earned a host of other awards at the Academy Awards, which air on the 27th of March. Now, it prompted us to watch a whole bunch of her work, but let's start with The Power of the Dog. It's on Netflix now. It's written by Campion, adapting a novel by Thomas Savage. A story of brothers in the New West, if you want to call it that, 1925 with sort of grim biblical overtones. George, played by Jesse Plemons, and Phil, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. They're the brothers. They have 25 years of ranching on the Montana Badlands, New Zealand's convincingly standing in. Uh, George is kind of reserved. You might even call him sort of sophisticated taste. He's he's always in a suit and tie, even when he's on horseback. This while Phil is proud, embittered. They're kind of both lonely in each other's company. All Phil's interested in is, is the past and what he and his brother have accomplished out there with the land and the grit and the hard work and the legacy of a mentor, a cowboy who died decades before. And Phil is a model of toxicity. You know, when when George takes a shine to a widow, a Rose, played by Kirsten Dunst, she's got a sensitive, creative son, uh, Peter, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, Phil feels really threatened. And that's where the drama starts. And then it goes into a lot of different places. This is a film that, that sort of Stay, starts with Rose and George and then shifts focus to Rose and her son Peter and their relationship and then finally goes to where Peter and Phil connect and this sort of odd narrative transition between different character relationships. I think it challenges us to stay with the story, but despite this wandering focus, the movie really sticks the landing. It delivers an amazingly satisfying 
climax, which I think makes the film really work. It's one of those movies where I was I wasn't sure where it was going, but when it got there, I was like, oh, I see. <laughs> it recontextualizes a lot of what you've seen before in a way that I found really well done. So I think it really deserves certainly the script awards that it's it's being nominated for. Um, a lot of the acting is pretty great. I mean. It's just it starts as kind of a dusty, austere, romantic tragedy, but ends up as kind of a gothic thriller in a way. Yeah, this film is so full of surprises. It's 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 not hard to see why it, it is so acclaimed. Uh, it, you know, online in the uh, you know Twitter gentia or whatever, the feelings are a lot more mixed. But it's you know for for me it, it was a delight. It was uh, I did not see where it was going ultimately, and I love that about this film. And and I think uh, that's I mean Jane Campion loves to uh, lead viewers by the nose and keep them guessing. It's it's something we've seen in in previous films, and uh, it's certainly the case here. Uh, you know some people have complained, most noticeably um, Sam Elliott uh, <laughs> has complained about about this not being a, a proper western or whatever. But I I think. You know, as soon as you start watching, within the first few minutes, you know it's not meant to be either a typical Western or a revisionist Western. It's it's the West as a backdrop for this amazing um, contrast of personalities, and it's really not meant to be seen first and foremost as a Western. You know, it's really about the personalities and about the toxicity that is uh, certainly entrenched in its main character, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. It's also amazing that it's her first film in over a decade that that. You know, we've not had a feature film from Jane Campion in so long. I mean, she uh, was working on the two seasons of the series uh, Top of the Lake. You know, she clearly had her hands full, but it's it's amazing that she comes just guns ablazing <laughs> with uh, with Power of the Dog in such a powerful and unique film. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I saw I saw Top of the Lake as well. I saw the first season at least, and I love that Elizabeth Moss as a sort of detective who who is uh, investigating a killing in her or a disappearance, I guess, in her small town in. In somewhere in the mountains in New Zealand, and uh, yeah, I, I yeah, we should, people should seek that out. Even though we are not a show that reviews series, <laughs> we want to give a, a nod of the cap to but, that but, one. But it is interesting when a filmmaker of her stature decides to stature decides to go into a, a series television and then just com- come up with something that just completely turns, you know, narrative television on its head in a lot of ways. Because of the, the first season with Holly Hunter, you know, who starred in the Piano, reteaming them for for a pretty astonishing uh, series and and a series of characters. Characters. And I think we, we talked about this uh, prior to uh, doing today's show, that the film is not perfect. There are some some areas of the film that could have been better explored and maybe things that were left on the cutting room floor. Uh, Jesse Plemons' character, you know, you kind of hope for more development uh, from him, but he kind of vanishes from the picture for long stretches of time, presumably because he's off selling cattle or whatever it is that he's doing to uh, support the ranch. But his, his presence is, is kind of missed. It, uh, you feel that he, maybe he should have played a bigger role in what happens in the film, but such is the, the film that we are presented with. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is interesting because it doesn't, it does leave certain characters sort of off screen for a while as it shifts focus. And it's, it's a tough challenge because I don't know that necessarily a lot of films are structured this way. But as I said, it really rewards you by the time you get to the end. Then you understand what all is going on. Now, I will say my problem with the film isn't so much that uh, Jesse Plemons' character is absent or or even the shifting of focus. It's that I think, and I know I'm going to be the minority here, but I think that Cumberbatch, who is nominated for Best Actor, is actually miscast. Uh, and maybe it's because I've just seen him too often play British brilliant eccentrics in, in, in historical dramas. But I feel like 
he struggles to convincingly sustain Phil's sort of calcified quarter century of anger and repression the way that maybe a Daniel Day-Lewis or a Joaquin Phoenix might do. He's he's technically impressive, and he, of course, angry. He, gets, he does do anger well enough for the purposes of the drama, but I don't feel like he captures the damaged soul of Phil. I wanted to understand more something something intangible that I didn't get. And I know that a lot of people love, I mean, I think Cumberbatch is a hugely gifted actor. I just am not sure that he's the best thing in this. Um, in fact, I think that he's kind of outshined by, but, I mean, Dunst is especially good. I think that she gives one of her best performances maybe next to something like Melancholia. Uh, and Plemons, who's starting to look a little more like Philip Seymour Hoffman in his <laughs> as he ages, yes. he's showing some of that late master's range as well. His stillness here is remarkable. I think this film is kind of pitched somewhere between Terry Malick's uh, Days of Heaven and somewhere between Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, and it reaches for a visual poetry and uh, and a kind of human tragedy that is, I mean, it has no lack of ambition. I just, I think that some of it, some of it works better than other. I mean, you mentioned that you have some issues as well. I think the the one part of it I also want to tip a hat to is Johnny Greenwood, the, the who's the composer, of course, famed from Radiohead, he delivers a score here that helps define the emotional landscape of the film, and it's wonderful. So there is a lot of different parts to the film. Some, I think, work better than others, but I think it's still very much worth seeing. Yeah, I could see other actors in the role than Cumberbatch. It's it's certainly not necessarily tailor-made for him, but I I kind of wonder if, um, at least in, in, I'm not trying to get inside the director's head, but I'm wondering if Jane Campion picked him because maybe she wanted to highlight that there are certain similarities between Phil Burbank and Peter Gordon, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, that that they're as much alike as they are different, I guess, in some way. And picking an an actor like Cumberbatch, who is, you know, a very striking presence on screen and and is kind of angular and lanky himself and and matching him with the very striking uh, Cody Smith-McPhee, I guess, sort of highlights that push-pull between the two characters. One, I mean, that's just me theorizing, but, yeah, but yeah, it seems like that's the, a possibility. Yeah, I, I would go along with that. I, but I guess I couldn't help but wonder whether or not like a, a traditional cowboy actor yeah. in that part might actually make the, the surprises of the end even more shocking. I mean, I don't know who that is. I'm I'm not I'm not a casting <laughs> agent, but but I mean, I can think of of traditional cowboy actors. You know, uh, they I'm not there's not many of them these days. Yeah, I know it's tough. Like there's uh you know the, the Phil. I mean, he's he's you know the rugged man of the West, but also needs to have that kind of withering intelligence that can just cut you down like a knife, as he so frequently does to uh, Peter and and other characters throughout the course of the film. And and uh, I guess maybe that's it's a tough tightrope to walk. Yeah, I guess. it is. It is. Um, but yes, very very much worth seeing the power of the dog and i i will look forward to it winning i assume it'll win some you know i think it's probably a favorite for best picture this year uh certainly campion who has won uh, academy awards before has got to be a favorite for best director but you know it's i actually the race this year is a is a bit up in the air so uh, that's actually going to make for a fun night i think not really knowing who is going to take what yeah and i hope i mean if it does win best picture i hope that maybe that'll give us a shot at perhaps seeing it in a theater because I feel like uh, having to watch it on Netflix, which you know, at least makes it widely available, 
to people. You know, you can just watch it at home. But I feel like there's a visual power to this film that is uh, not necessarily present when you watch it on a on a screen at at home uh, rather than in a theater. I think this film was made for a big screen, and unfortunately, we haven't had that opportunity. Yeah, that is a problem. Um, so hey, let's uh, let's talk a little yeah. bit about her last feature film before this one, and we have to go back to Bright Star from 2009. It was written and directed by Jane Campion, adapting a biography by Andrew Motion called Keats, and it's about the the poet John Keats. Now, it's set in the winter of 1818, and actually goes over a whole year, I think, uh, in Hampstead, which at the time now is a suburb of London, at the time a village north of London. Fanny Braun is played by Abby Cornish. She's a bold and confident local presence in the community. She proudly shares sort of a fashion-forward approach with her handmade clothes. Um, And it's a way for her to make a living, something that most of the celebrated male poets in the community aren't able to do with their words. Now, even though they're quite celebrated, those poets include John Keats, played by Ben Wishaw, and a temperamental Scot, Charles Armitage Brown, played by Paul Schneider, who, of course, being men, are given way more sway and attention than Fanny Braun is. But it's it's funny, the, the kind of dichotomy between the men and the women in the community, these young men and women, is immediately plain to see from, from the way that Campion tells this story. Uh, now, as the winter turns to spring on the heath there in Hampstead, Braun and Keats grow close. They get surrounded by apple blossoms and butter flies it's absolutely gorgeously shot however brown is jealous of the time and care that keats pays to brawn and uh and endeavors to complicate their growing and very obvious love affair um and even more complicating is the fact keats is penniless he cannot marry unless he can provide support for his bride and meanwhile charles brown uh encourages keats to scorn this woman avoid the comp- compromises of marriage uh this is a film, interestingly, even though it's a period drama, it's a film about youth culture and how the hunger for connection between people was sustained through notes and letters and the written world word so important as it is now, obviously, through social media, though perhaps even more cherished because, of course, on paper, it lasts longer, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but it's really is interesting. It's coming of age story as much as it is a tragic love story. Yeah, Keats could just as well be a, like a struggling singer-songwriter or something like that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I feel like maybe we've even seen that movie before, but uh, but but here uh, it's played by Ben Wishaw. He's he's uh, he's very sympathetic and and uh, you know very a very soulful character and and uh, he he really does uh, you know play this poet without veering off into you know uh, you know self-parody or stereotypes of of, of a you know a poet who's got the movie disease, <laughs> you know, wasting away with consumption or whatever, or TB. I can't remember what, what it is that, uh, spoiler alert, he does not, uh, does not live to a ripe old age. Um, and, uh, but, uh, it's, it's just a, a fascinating tale of, of these creative spirits and, and you know, that, that, uh, Fanny and, and Keats are both creative in their own way and have this kind of dueling personalities and, and Brown, Brown could be a movie in and of himself. If you, yeah. if you look into the historic <laughs> George Armitage Brown, an insanely bizarre life of, of like one failed venture after another that he somehow, you know, at least managed to turn into prose and, and at some point, uh, later on in his life. And I guess that, that probably supported him, but it's a fascinating character who, and, you know, played by an American actor, oddly enough. Um, but, uh, 
but but yeah, this is this film was new to me. You were lucky enough to see it at the Oxford when it came out. This uh-huh. this one somehow completely passed me by, and it's not a film that uh, seems to have lingered long in the public consciousness. I think it you know got some attention at the time, and then uh, kind of vanished. No wonder Jane went into uh, into T series television after this, because I, I feel like this film should have found a firmer footing than it did at the time. Yeah, and I think that's true of a number of her films having not really been hits at the box office, and maybe that's why she decided to make television. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I think people really, if they can find uh, Bright Star, I have it on DVD, and uh, it was my favorite film in 2009, and it still kills me. It's, it's a film, there's not too many films that leave me a blubbering mess by the end, <laughs> but this one does it, and it's because every part of it works so well. Um, Campion's gift for character and storytelling, uh, cinematographer uh, Greg Frazier, who went on to make to shoot Dune recently and the Batman. So he is like at the top of his game right now. If you like, if you're interested in cinematography, go and check out what he does with, with Bright Star. There are moments where he paints with light in a way that is absolutely beautiful. A composer, Mark Bradshaw, who provides this lovely sort of unobtrusive soundscape. And, uh, uh, Janet Patterson, who is the production designer and the costume designer. She does both of those hmm. things, which is very unusual. Maybe because it's a small film, she's able to sort of wear both hats. Um, but that helps characters manifest in their rooms and the surroundings and in the clothing. And, um, yeah, it is, uh, it's lovely. Oh, and, and around the main characters, the sort of love triangle, uh, in a way, is uh, are the other Bronze family. Fanny's mother, played by Carrie Fox, a regular in, in Jane Campion films, and younger brother Thomas Brody Sangster and sister Edie Martin. They reminded me a little bit of Ang Lee's and Emma Thompson's, you know, Aus- uh, Jane Austen's film, uh, Sense and Sensibility, this loving family always looking out for each other. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, it's so warm and so loving and so uh, sad in the end. <laughs> yeah, it really does uh, translate the essence and beauty of poetry to the screen. And, and of course, uh, that's something that Campion has done in other films, as we'll see as we move along through this show. Uh, and, and, you know, she sees a connection between filmmaking and poetry that's, that's I think, pretty unique in filmmaking, at least being able to do it on this scale. And, uh, you know, this, this film accomplishes it in such a beautiful and touching way. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. We're back with further look at the work of Jane Campion, who has returned to feature films with The Power of the Dog, released late in 2020 and is now a top contender at this year's Academy Awards. And we don't usually talk about Academy Awards stuff to any great degree. Sometimes we like to look into the, the world of the foreign language films or, or whatever they're calling them, international films, I guess, or they've changed the name of the category. But Jane Campion's return uh, after over a decade to the feature film format is... Uh, worthy enough of, of, of look at both uh, her current film, The Power of the Dog, and also her amazing career of, of making films that, that really take some remarkable chances and present a really fresh and intriguing point of view uh, with a lot of uh, visual style and a lot of humor. But it all starts uh, with uh, her first feature, which has a feel of more of like a an art school project that wound up on television but it's it's a charming story nonetheless uh, it's very much a first feature uh, called two friends that uh, is currently available on the uh, criterion channel they're they're featuring uh, a handful of her films and and this one which uh, did get a dvd release in north america through a milestone uh, many moons ago uh, is really worth a look uh, as as a deteriorating relationship between two girls in high school who are 
coming into uh, womanhood at different speeds, as it were. There, there's Kelly and uh, Louise, and you know, one's kind of a punk rock girl who's who's a lot more uh, mature sexually. The other one is uh, she's the shy music student who admires the other, but isn't really ready to plunge uh, full bore into into that world of of boys and sexuality. And and the film is has an interesting technique in where it starts kind of at the end of the friendship, and then sort of scene by scene works its way backwards to, if not the beginning, then the sort of the heyday of, of when they were really truly schoolmates before things like culture and boys and so on came in between them and, and uh, you know, their different relationships with their parents and so on. And it doesn't feel particularly fresh in terms of the story, but the performances are, are by the, the young actors are, are very refreshing and, and there's a lot of humor and heart in it as well. And it's, it's, it's not a bad start. Well, I uh, I look forward to seeing that one. That was not one I was able to have time for this week, but I st- instead started with Sweetie, which I guess Two Friends was made or at least shown on television and now, of course, available on the Criterion channel. Sweetie is also available on Criterion, and that is her, I guess, considered her first feature that was released in theaters uh, from 1989, and it's uh, it's written by Campion and Gerard Lee. Uh, now, the movie, the Sweetie, starts with uh, a young woman, Kay, and her boyfriend, Lewis. Now, Kay is an entirely prone to new age sort of thinking. Uh, she convinces Lewis, who is engaged to one of her co-workers at a factory, to be with her. But uh, though she has success with that, things aren't going smoothly in their intimate life. And all that's complicated by the arrival of Dawn, also known as Sweetie, and her boyfriend, Bob. Dawn <laughs> her her is, producer. Producer, yeah. <laughs> Bo- Dawn is, is Kay's sister, and she's prone to, let's say, impulsive behavior. As, as, but as Kay says, she's so bloody cunning. Um, and then we play, get to spend some time with Kay and Dawn's father who comes to stay. The parents are having marital issues. Uh, and it's funny, the sort of family unit starts to grow around these characters. And, uh, and it, this is an odd one. Um, I think I think it might be described as a dark comedy. I found it a bit of a struggle. There's a challenge... It's, I think, a, a challenge for me to enjoy spending time with this group of deeply deluded, unhappy, unpleasant characters, none of whom are people I think anyone would want to spend any time with, but you're locked in with them for an hour and 40 minutes while they go through very difficult times. And I did chuckle occasionally, but mostly I was just kind of appalled at the whole group of them. Um, there is some joy, I think, to be had from uh, the art direction. I was reminded a little bit of Tim Burton's early work, or even maybe David Lynch, in the lighting and the composition of the shots. Clearly, Campion is, you know, with her first time making a feature film, she wants to get it just right, and all the the lighting is just so. Uh, it, but, it, you know, it does, I think, cross over into sort of self-consciousness without it actually bringing a lot to the story. Yeah, I, you know, there's Artie, and then there's Artie for Artie's sake. Uh, and... Anyway, so I I, uh, I did struggle with some of that, um, though at the same time I appreciated that clearly she wants to make an effort to do something different with this kind of material, but I did not like the characters, and so I found it a real challenge uh, to find any kind of sympathy for them. It's a little bit like watching, you know, a car accident in slow motion, I guess. Yeah, kind of. I saw this in the theater when it came out. This is my my introduction to Jane Campion's work, and and. Uh it was certainly unusual at the time. wasn't much like anything I'd seen. And th- there was a whole trend of these very quirky Australian character-driven comedies that came out around the time. Because at this point, uh, Jane Campion's from New Zealand, but at this point, she's working in Australia, um, where she went to film school. And uh, I, I, you know, you do get the feeling that 
much of what happens in sweetie is a you said art for arty for arty's sake <laughs> and i wrote down quirky for quirky's sake so <laughs> yeah we're, we're in some ways we're on the same page um but you know she's already developing her visual eye there's there's, there's lots of interesting uses of, of camera angles and and uh some techniques and and uh you know like like even in two friends she's using bits of animation and stuff like that to kind of make her work stand out and she's doing that here as well and uh you know it's it's i it's almost like you need to know some of the backstory around this film like she she's basically kind of inspired by the relationship with her own sister who later collaborates with her on on other projects but um i think anna campion mm -hmm. and, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. um they but she basically took their relationship which she says is not antagonistic like it is in this film but decided to sort of blow it up to uh to kind of larger than life proportions and that's what we get but it's you know it's it's clear you 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 you're watching the film and and the character of sweetie the the sister who has got no impulse control whatsoever clearly needs some sort of medical help and is not getting it or from you know anyone uh in this family just sort of she's they make it clear she's been spoiled her whole life and this is uh this is what's happened to her and uh i don't know if that's meant to be a, a parable or a fable or anything but it's you know the, no one in this film acts like any human should probably act in, in any kind of given situation so uh that part you have to kind of hang up your logic center at the door to, to watch the film. And I, I did enjoy it for its quirky humor and it's kind of Australianness, for lack of a better term, but, uh, but there are definitely uh, bigger and brighter things ahead after sweetie. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's fair to say. I mean, uh, completists might want to check this one out. Um, they, actually there's a mid movie interlude where Kay and Lewis go to visit Flo. Kay is their mother in the outback. That actually ended up being kind of a lot of fun. I did enjoy those characters <laughs> and <laughs> the oddness of that. Well, they have to trick sweetie into get it because sweetie locks herself in the car and won't leave unless they take her. They basically have to trick her into not going and then we get this interlude that doesn't have her in it so maybe that's uh, why so maybe that's why and then and then it just gets very very strange at the end although interestingly I, I i have the dvd of this and i watched it with the commentary and jane campion talks on the commentary talks about her love of nudity in her films and why she likes seeing characters naked because it's because it's very human and they're very that's that they're at their most vulnerable and uh you know presumably she's very upfront with her actors right off the bat and if you've seen her films, they, you know, they kind of know what they're getting in for when they're in for them. But she, she, you know, it's just a way to kind of grab the audience in a way that, uh, that no other kind of stylistic touch can, can do. And that's part of the reason why she does it so frequently. And I heard reports that she will offer to be nude on set while the actors are as well. I don't know if they've taken her up on that offer or not, but uh, apparently she's put it out there. Wow. That's something, you know, we had, uh, we did our show recently about uh, Paul Verhoeven and, and that we noticed how often his male actors are nude in, in films. Of course, his female actors are too, but, but uh, it's, it's a little, it's, you know, for us here in North America, there, you know, it's a little less frequent, obviously, yeah. to see full frontal male nudity, and uh, they should get together and talk about their <laughs> about their well, interests. And oddly enough, she all, and and in the same commentary, uh, Jane Campion also says that she likes to show people going to the bathroom 
uh, but which we see, you know, in, in it's the it in Sweetie, and we see it in the pa- piano, and 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 we see it in Holy Smoke. Um, and uh, she says, uh, but I guess I haven't kept that one up. But, <laughs> but she's kept it up enough. Enough, yeah, yeah, certainly. Let's. This is an opportunity for us to talk about her second film, An Angel at My Table, from 1990. It's written by Laura Jones, an adaptation of Janet Frames three autobiographies. Now, I didn't know who Janet Frame was before I watched this, but I did a little bit of reading. She was a renowned 20th century New Zealand writer who was institutionalized for uh, a misdiagnosis of mental illness uh, for years. And she wrote about her experiences and her autobiographies in the 1980s were huge hits. And then that's what prompted this film. Now, um, uh, what's what uh, Campion does is cast her in three different ages. Uh, Alexia Keo plays Frame as a child, Karen Ferguson as a teenager, and Carrie Fox as an adult. With these sort of like this this cloud of red hair, each of these uh, these actors has, and it, they look so much alike, and they're shot in such a way almost didn't notice the changes between actors. <laughs> they, they, it all takes place over the first hour. Um, now I also have to admit that uh, I found the first hour a real plotting uh i found it really hard to engage it's just it seems like this chaotic family life i mean it's basically little episodic moments of the the family kind of you know trying to to live there's a bunch of kids i don't even know how many kids are in this family i know there were like four girls but there were at least a another boy maybe two other boys it's hard to tell um <laughs> and all the girls sleep together in the same bed and uh we see how uh you know it's they're impoverished and uh, janet who's called Jean. She writes poems uh, and her father gives her a book to write them in. So she's encouraged to her creativity is encouraged. But, you know, you get the you get the privation of poverty. You get to see that the older sister Myrtle is might might be the outrageous one. And she gets the strap for bad behavior. Um, you know, and after about an hour of this, I was just like, where is this going? I, I felt this was a really like I found it really tough to be engaged by it. But but it's the kind of film, I mean, it's a long film, two hours, 20 minutes, almost 30 minutes, and it really pays off. Once um, Janet reaches adulthood, and Carrie Fox is amazing in the role, and she she has this time, and she's institutionalized, and she becomes, she tries to come into herself. It becomes kind of heroic. Like, she is, she is someone who's clearly dealing with a lot of stuff. She's nervous. She's anxious. She's, she has some challenges. But, I mean, does she deserve to be institutionalized? Absolutely not. She just needs, she needs to find herself, which is what happens in the second half of the film. And I was, I was so engaged. I, it's kind of amazing how the, the, all that time spent with the family, which I found, like, such a struggle, was totally paid off in the end when she comes into herself and she finds courage to go out into the world. It's amazing. Yeah, I I saw this when it came out, and I was I was completely enraptured by this film at the time back in uh, 1990 when it came out, and I think it was one of my favorite. Well, it was definitely one of my favorite films of that year, if not my favorite film of that year. Uh, and and the family stuff, I, I I felt kind of drawn into it just because because it was so chaotic and because she was kind of so lost in this family dynamic, uh, and, and you know you have to kind of see how she emerges as an individual from from that kind of maelstrom of a family environment with kids jumping on the furniture and like you say not even being able to really nail down how many siblings she actually has uh and then of course uh you know we we lose a couple along the way which gives her a kind of that that the grief that informs her work um 
you know, and gives her gives it her life some real gravitas. Uh, and it's just a beautiful portrait of an artist, how an artist kind of comes into creation, basically, you know, from from her earliest uh, days in in elementary school, you, you see the, the kind of the roots of the artist uh, forming, uh, you know, before she even realizes what's happening. And, and I think that's what uh, what uh, Jane saw in Janet Frame's writing. I, I think in I think it's based on three books. And I believe it was maybe on Australian or New Zealand television, it was actually presented in three parts and then it's kind of stitched together into a feature film and then released worldwide sort of thing. So maybe that's why it, in the, that disjointed uh, effect is also a, a part of it as well. But uh, it's, it's just such an amazing portrait of, of uh, you know, a human spirit blossoming from, from childhood to, to kind of really her, her first taste of freedom as an adult. Uh, and it's, it's the a kind of journey you don't get to see too often in films. Yeah, I, I agree there for sure. And I, I especially liked her, like I said, I mean, it was the second half of the film that really worked for me, the, where she goes to the United Kingdom, to London. She, she meets people who are, you know, she shares some interests with some creative people. She writes some more. Uh, then she goes to Biza, which you think, like, why? Why, why this island, this Mediterranean Spanish island? But uh, she wants to be there, and she wants to connect with – she doesn't speak the language, but she starts to learn it. And she wants to connect with the locals who sort of welcome her in because she's not – A tourist. She's not yeah. a tourist. She's there to be – just to live there. And I love that about it. I love the two Spanish ladies who are very welcoming of her. And it's like, oh, you're not like the others. And then when she meets an American and, you know, starts to get together with him, they're very – judgmental yes. of her behavior uh yeah yeah, yeah but even you know the, these americans show up and there's this guy this one guy that meets her at the boat and she has a crush on him but he kind of rebuffs her pretty early on and she talks about how she feels as sexless as a block of wood and yet somehow on ibiza everything kind of you know kind of blossoms and uh it's it, this remarkable transformation takes takes place and it's it's all down to carrie fox being such a wonderful actor uh and then pulling this off yeah oh for sure i sort of felt like that could have been its own movie right it could have stretched yeah, that to feature sure. length uh, but but you know we we get this sort of as you say this sort of th tripart uh uh tale which we don't get to see very often we don't get to see all of that so so yeah i think i was really glad i was had the patience to stick with it uh even though i wasn't as much of a fan of the early part of the film i'm really glad i did because it's so rewarding by the end um so before we finish our th second segment here Stephen, we should spend a little time talking about what is still probably jane campion's biggest best known film and that's piano written and directed by her alone um, and it was such a huge film culturally in 1993, uh, and and of course, as we mentioned, nominated for a bunch of Oscars, won a bunch, and it's a story of a woman, a Scots woman, in the sometime in the 18, uh, the 19th century, Ada McGrath, played by Holly Hunter. She doesn't speak. Uh, she gets married off an arranged marriage to a New Zealand frontiersman, so she has to travel from Scotland to New Zealand. Uh, this Mister Stewart um, and. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and she's got to, um, you know, find her way there. And the start of the film, she's being carried through the surf onto the beach with her belongings, including her beloved piano, uh, along with her 11-year-old uh, her daughter. And uh, this is the part of the film I rem best remembered f was that opening, um, the elemental imagery and the score by Michael Nyman. Uh, of course, Anna Paquin's character, she's she's 11 years old. She famously won uh, Best Supporting Actor or Actress. Um, she's interpreting for her mother, 
Uh, and uh, Holly Hunter won Best Actress for a leading role uh, and uh, apparently played a lot of the piano parts herself. Uh, she'd been playing the instrument since she was a child. Um, yeah, so it's about her coming and trying to make sense of this community and her sort of difficult relationship with her husband. And then uh, and then another man um, played by Harvey Keitel, uh, you know, an odd character from 2022, I guess, to be cast as as Maori. But, uh, you know, obviously it would have been better if they cast someone from that nationality as we, we are much more sensitive to that these days. Uh, but in 1993, I bet you the pressure was on to cast someone who might have an impression at the box office so um anyway well yeah. it's a it's a weird character because I, I i don't know if he's like part irish and part maori or something like and he talks about having a wife back in england so right uh, right so it's, it's an odd uh, and thing. they they and they talk about uh the fact that he's you know gotten a little too close with the natives or whatever there's a bit of dialogue about that so um it, it just seems like he's been absorbed by the country as it were. And right. So maybe he's not actually, he, he's a settler who has, who has, um, connected with the indigenous community. I, I feel like it's more like along those lines and mm. that he may have at one time even had a Maori wife perhaps. And, okay. okay. uh, I, I don't think he's meant to be <laughs> indigenous, but it's, it's a lot of, a lot of stuff is left cloudy in this film. So it's, it's not surprising, but, uh, for example, the, the story of why, uh, Ada does not speak is there's multiple stories told. Uh, Flora has a habit of, I think she kind of makes stories up as to why that is. Oh, the daughter. Yeah. yeah. There's a great moment where she's telling the story to this woman there and it's, she's just, She's very convincing. Yes. <laughs> this tall tale that we know right away is is not true. And apparently, in the novelization, which I guess I, I guess Campion also did a novelization of the story, sort of like you know Tarantino once upon a time in Hollywood, and and uh, and it's much more clear about what happened and why she uh, where you know who Flora's father is, who her real father is, and also uh, the reasons why she doesn't speak. Oh. And, and apparently, there's there's stuff in the book that isn't in the film where and i and i guess that she just enjoyed having the mystery of it uh you know more uh, more baked in in the film than than in the novel necessarily uh but it, it's it's still a this film i think it holds up pretty well 30 years later uh just in terms of its, its gorgeous visuals the kind of primal force of nature versus uh you know man's uh, settlers attempts to to tame it uh the the kind of interesting relationship between this plantation owner and 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 uh, the maori villagers who you know really are are not uh you know not going to be uh, not, they're not going to succumb to him his will in any way shape or form uh and i, I like that aspect of the film oh. and 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 just a, the great holly hunter performance uh where she's there's some narration which is supposed to be the voice inside of her head it doesn't i don't even know if it's her maybe i think it maybe it is her but she's using a voice that does not sound familiar so um and we only hear from it once or twice over the course of the film it's it's a device that's not overused thank goodness um you know she just does it all with the power of her face um and gestures and just a very physical uh primal performance that uh that is you know, has not uh, aged one bit uh, all these years later. Yeah, and and Paquin, you know, I remember when I first saw it, Paquin, I felt was a little, uh, a little irritating to my, I guess, you know, my time when I was watching it. Then I found her, 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 you know, eleven year old 
earnestness and, and intensity a bit much. But uh, watching it again, it was a remarkable performance for someone that age. Like, she's really, really good. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. The film does hold up after all these years and, and was, was, I think, uh, justifiably, uh, you know, uh, acclaimed at the time. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And now we're on to the third segment of our episode of Lens Me Your Ears, devoted to the work of Jane Campion. And uh, in this one, we're going to start by uh, uh, talking about Holy Smoke from 1999. This was written by Anna and Jane, uh, the sisters. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, it's funny, this film. I remember seeing it, but had not great memories of it when when it first came out. And then rewatching it. At first, I thought it was set in the 1970s, what with all the old cars. And uh-huh. it's, and you know, and it's then the whole like the theme of finding enlightenment in India. I mean, that seems like something that is a holdover from the 60s or the 70s. You've got Kate Winslet, Winslet, uh, she plays Ruth, uh, and she is a character, an Australian girl who, a young woman who's gone to India. She's found connection with a guru and she's completely into it. Uh, but her family is very concerned and they basically lie to her to get her to come back to Australia and then they hire a deprogrammer to try and uh, free her from this brainwashing. Um, So, yeah, I'm like, oh, this is all happening in the 70s. And then we have a scene of Ruth singing Alanis Morissette in the Outback. And I'm like, what is going on? And I got to think that that's on purpose, that this film seems to be messing with our perception of time periods. Because none of the cars are new. They're all like from 30 or 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, but that's an Australian thing. Cars don't rust. (laughs) uh, They don't put salt on the roads. Right, right. (laughs) There's no snow. Uh, It's funny you mentioned that because it's uh something i noticed uh when i was down there that there there are a lot of older cars kicking around because uh you know as long as you kind of do the maintenance they'll they'll last uh quite a bit longer there than they do in canada uh and uh you know i i you know i'd see there's a weird there's a weird thing where studebakers are really popular in australia maybe Uh even more so than so i quite often see old studebakers kind of kicking around like you know urban uh, urban cities in australia just uh, and and tangentially uh in the the series jack irish with guy pierce he drives an old studebaker oh yeah so, just a bizarre little footnote there but um which which kind of confirmed my theory about studebakers being really strangely popular in australia huh. but uh but yeah but but you're right it, it is you know i i think she's trying to maybe connect with that post 60s malaise where people you know, all of a sudden, the the whole Woodstock generation <laughs> fell apart, and maybe people were were still trying to find themselves. And then in the seventies, you get into all these different gurus and self help and EST and and uh, and uh, all these movements that people got into to try and you know find some sort of spiritual value or spiritual core for themselves, even even if they're necessarily just kind of boosting their own sense of self-worth or ego or whatever through these movements. And, uh, that's, and that's, you know, certainly we saw the rise of cults, 
in a big way, you know, post Manson family and so on. So, so I, I don't, I don't know if that's just like a subconscious uh, nod back to that whole period, or if it's like, like as you say, a, a sort of deliberate blurring of the lines. But, um, you know, it it does put us in a unique kind of universe where. And it allows the characters to be a little larger than life, too. Yeah, for sure. And, and and you know what's funny? It's it's also kind of a comedy, ostensibly. I mean, it has these serious subtexts and themes going on, but uh, but it's a the, the the connection really becomes about the struggle between this young woman who is smart and committed, and this likely toxic, very vain dude who you know he dyes his hair, and uh, and we have a sense of him and her to start with, but uh, he's played by Harvey Keitel again. Um, but uh, as it goes along, it becomes about their power struggle, and it becomes very unclear where the power lies in this relationship. She's supposed to be spending three days with him as he deprograms her, but she's making fun of his age and his, his masculinity. So which of these two characters is being deprogrammed, as we start to wonder? Uh, and it becomes very much almost like a weird, I mean, it becomes very sensual and, uh, and becomes very serious. Uh, and I mean, I was reminded right away that Kate Winslet was an actor who from the get-go is terrific like even yeah. at that young age she had all the abilities that made her you know a great actor and uh it's so great to see pam greer show up here even if only for a brief you know one scene uh <laughs> yeah, she's not expect that no <laughs> me blue. neither um but it is uh it is a difficult in some ways there's moments of really difficult sort of traumatic uh, aggressive stuff going on here but we find out that you know her family is just as weird and messed up as maybe she is and and all our perceptions keep changing as the film goes on i really loved watching holy smoke again i think next to bright star it might have been my favorite yeah the battle of wills between uh winslet's character and Crytel's deprogrammer is is pretty astonishing uh if i had to find fault in the film. Sometimes I think some transitions happen a little too quickly. I feel like his ego uh, and whatever skills, I'm making air quotes here, uh, that he has at kind of controlling people, I, I think would have would have made it a little tougher. But, but, uh, but you know, Kate Winslet is definitely meant to be a determined and, and powerful person. And, and uh, you know, they, they butt heads uh, frequently. Um, and it's, it's, you know, she's, she's uh, just as tough as he is, you know, and he calls her, he calls her a man hater. And then she goes, uh, the jeans, cowboy boots, black t-shirt and the sunglasses. Is that the uniform of the individual? <laughs> and, uh, you know, she, 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 she's got his number pretty much right off the bat and, uh, and makes no bones about it. She's not going to be taken in. And it's, um, you know, and in the, in the process, they, they, you know, they do allow themselves to become vulnerable in a way that's really touching amidst all this kind of comic bantering that goes on around it. Yeah, I, mean, I had a little trouble as well with the ending. I wasn't sure that I quite believed how it wrapped up. Mm. Um, but there, I did feel that there was some hopefulness there, some compassion that finally found between them, if only from a distance. Um, but uh, anyway, anyway, let's move on to the next film in Campion's uh, filmography, and that's The Portrait of a Lady from 1996. Laura Jones, uh, again, uh, adapting uh, a Henry James novel. Now, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with this particular book, but it's set in 1870s. It's a story of another, a headstrong young woman, Isabel Archer, played by Nicole Kidman who through an uncle, very briefly John Gilgood in the film, inherits a fortune, and she's beset by suitors, including handsome men played by Viggo Mortensen and Rich D. Grant. This is a terrific cast. Uh, she even have, has a cousin who loves her, played by Martin Donovan. Uh, and, uh, 
yeah, there's this great fantasy sequence where Isabel imagines being made love to by these three men before they vanish like apparitions as a way to show her desire uh, for connection in the society of manners and reputation. And it's a potent moment. Um, and later we get this black and white sequence of Isabel's travels through Italy and Egypt like a newsreel, <laughs> which doesn't really make much sense for 1873. But I love these departures from the style of literary a- adaptations. We sort of know, you know, there is a certain style. Um, anyway, Isabel ends up being the object of a plan hatched by her slightly older friend, Serena, played by Barbara Hershey, and Serena's ex-lover, Gilbert, played by John Malkovich. Now, I like Malkovich a lot, but I think he's, I don't think he's right here. And it's no. because, and it's mostly because of dangerous liaisons. He's playing a character way too much like Valmont, who seduces <laughs> women for sport. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It? And at the time it came out, it was pretty soon after dangerous liaisons. Yeah, it was within a, within the decade anyway. And, and, you know, his relationship with Hershey parallels the one between him and Glenn Close in that film. So it's obviously calculating. So we never understand what Isabel sees in him or why she would, being so headstrong and wanting her independence, why she would decide to marry him. That is the flaw of the film. It's like a fatal flaw because right away she seems silly, like a huge mistake she makes. And it's very hard to understand then as we flash forward by three years why she's still with him and why she just did this. And that's never really clear. And then, of course, we learn more things. More secrets are revealed. Um, I think it's worth seeing for the cast you know, I mean, along with these characters, you've got Mary Louise Parker, Shelley Winters, Shelley Duvall, and Christian, young Christian Bale. I mean, these are great actors. It's nice to see them all working together, but I don't think this is as engaging as some of the other campions we saw. Yeah, I I did not care much for it at the time that I saw it in the theater in 96, I guess, uh, that it came out. And um but I, I, watching it now, and and especially in the midst of a bunch of other Jane Campion films, um, it uh, it plays a lot better for me. I, Malkovich is still kind of completely wrong for the character. I feel, uh, I mean, he's wrong for he's he's right for the kind of uh, parasitic aspect of his nature. But but you know there needs to be that early attraction, and and you know it's hard to see that you know when he's kind of. Kind of like a Nosferatu, basically, you know, kind of preying on on uh, on poor Isabel. But uh, but I, you know, I like it more knowing that that roadblock is there in advance. Helped me enjoy it a lot more this time around, and and to 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 see it for this kind of um, study of Isabel's struggle for her own power, and it, and it it her character very much aligns with other female leads in other Jane Campion films from. You know, like Holy Smoke and uh, and Top of the Lake, the the the, uh, the teenage protagonist in season two is going through the same thing with her uh, much older and much creepier boyfriend uh, in that series that uh, Isabel is going through with uh, Gilbert Osmond in The Portrait of a Lady. And you know, once you get to kind of past that initial attraction part, uh, you know, you can, you kind of sense the the evil in his gaslighting and, and how hard she has to fight to break free of that. And, and that's where the power of the film lies. I, I'd be curious to read the book. I've, I've read some Henry James, but not that novel. And, uh, you know, his writing is so evocative and, and, and timeless that, uh, you know, I, I'd be curious to see what his actual description of Gilbert in the book is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would too. And, and, uh, I've certainly, not, other of his works have been adapted for the screen and they're, they're also worth seeing, you know, uh, there might be a, might be a show in the future for us of <laughs> well, I'd, like some of the, these adaptations. I'm thinking of Turn of the Screw, which became The Innocence, which is, you know, one of the, probably his, his best adaptation, but, uh, 
I'm, I'm sure there's some other ones out there, but uh, this one, uh, aside from that sort of glaring bit of casting, uh, I think uh, is, is a standout. Yeah, and I like I like Malkovich generally, but I think yeah, I think they were just not given enough reason to understand why she would fall in love with him and why she would choose make this decision, which is so different for for her character. Um, now, before we wrap up this episode of Lens Mirror Ears, we need to talk about one more film in Campion's filmography here, and that's In the Cut from 2003, written by Campion from a Susanna Moore book. And um, this is a really odd film, and I it, it hasn't been well-reviewed. I was really glad to see it, though, for a couple of reasons. You can feel some of Campion's stylistic interests poetry, for instance, um, and it's probably best known as Meg Ryan's effort to stretch from her romantic comedy safe spot into thriller territory. Uh, Ryan plays a teacher, Franny Avery, in Manhattan in post-9-11 Manhattan. She lives right in the city. Her life overlaps in the street pimps and denizens of the nightlife. She has a sister, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, who is as awesome as usual, uh, who only who frequently just talks about sex and the men she wants to be with. And um, there's a woman in the neighborhood who's murdered, her throat is slashed, and she's disarticulated, whatever that means, sounds awful. Uh, and while he's investigating, a local detective, Malloy, asks her on a date, and uh, uh, that's Franny, on a date, and they click. And he's played by Mark Ruffalo, in a, who's a much rougher, less pleasant character than we're used to seeing him portray. He's sexist and obnoxious and leave, even a domineering. Um, but she lets him into her life and her bed. Uh, it, it um, you know, and I think what works for in the cut is that an atmosphere of oppression, this constant tension between the men and the women on screen, that physical intensity. I, I you know, I, I, some of it is sexy and, and sensual, but a lot of it feels really dangerous for our lead character. And I think that's what Campion's trying to get at here. She's not as interested in the thriller elements. No, I think. not at all. I think that's yeah. a lot of people, that's the, the issue that <laughs> for the film that the actual plot is 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 really just uh window dressing for this uh story of a sexual power yeah no for sure i mean anyone i think who's used to watching thrillers can pick out who the who the killer is within the first 20 minutes i know i did i'm like i wonder if i'm right and it turned mm-hmm. out i was because all the other candidates are red herrings and you can kind of see that but what works is this atmosphere this intensity uh and about the the gender relationships and about this woman in the city who is super vulnerable but she's trying to make a good life for herself and trying to to be true to herself and um and her decisions and uh yeah I, I there was a lot about it i liked even though i i don't think it at all works yeah there's there's kind of a sour tone to this film that uh i, I couldn't shake it the first time i watched it and then revisiting it it was still there but i i appreciated meg ryan's performance uh a great deal you know she playing this very kind of languid character who's sort of letting the current of life carry her along and into these uh, kind of dangerous situations and and uh you know, it's, I mean, we haven't seen her in a film in like seven years or something like that. Like she's just kind of, and after this film, she, she really backed off from, from being a major presence in, in films. And it's a shame because she does give a very strong performance here, but, uh, you know, she found something better to do with her life after many years on screen, I guess. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, and you know, it's, she clearly was frustrated with always doing the same kinds of roles. And this is an effort to show that she had other things she could do. And she absolutely did them like in the cut is, is, uh, you know, is an interesting film, even as I say, even if it doesn't all work, I think it's worth seeing. And certainly for fans of Jane Campion and for the kind of story she likes to tell, I think it's it's really worth seeing. 
Okay, thus concludes this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast, and our chat and our conversation, our thoughts on uh, Jane Campion and her films. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Um, if you want to reach out to us, we are on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter as Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, Stephen, you're also on Twitter, aren't you? Yes, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm also on Twitter. You can find me by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Many, many thanks to CKDU 88.1 FM for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5. And thank you also to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all your wizardry in the studio. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we'll be talking about movies again very soon. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.